0: To get the latest news as well as fun bonuses, be sure to sign up for my weekly herbal newsletter. Okay, grab your cup of tea. Let's dive in. At one point during this interview, I forgot I was doing a podcast. Instead, I was caught up in all that Greg was sharing and simply there for the conversation, which ranges from the interesting ways that plants caught Greg's attention as a young boy, to the beauty and nourishment of oaks, to the challenges the lands of Indiana face, the perils of raw garlic. We cover a lot. For those of you who don't know Greg Monzel, he's a student of nature with a gift for nourishing deep connections between people and plants. He first experienced the medicinal power of plants as a teenager when he successfully treated his chronic strep throat with raw pineapple. He has been a practicing herbal educator, medicine maker, and grower since 2008. Greg and his wife Colleen co-founded Persimmon Herb School in 2015, To hold plant-centered space and build a healing community you can visit greg at persimmonherbschool.com well welcome to the podcast greg
1: thank you rosalie it's great to be here
0: oh i'm pleased to have you i'm so excited about the herb that you've chosen but obviously Mm. the place we need to start is this whole like pineapple strep throat thing so i would i would love to hear that story
1: Sure. I just told this story this morning, so it's fresh for me. So I was a like middle schooler, probably 12 or 13 years old. And in the summertime one year, I started getting strep throat. And my mom, who's a nurse, you know, she wouldn't take me into the doctor for anything. But if I needed a prescription, she would know that and she would take me in. So we'd go in, I'd get antibiotics, take that for the full treatment, you know, period. And then my strep throat went away, of course, but then within a week or so it was coming back and I would go back to the doctor, get the antibiotics, take that again, It'd go away a week later, it's coming back again. And it, I don't know why, but I probably took five or six rounds of antibiotics that one summer. And it just seemed to me intuitively, this did not make sense. This is not how medicine is supposed to work and I don't want to keep doing this. So I had that in mind. And then I was at my grandfather's, parent's house. And my grandpa had a copy of like Gary Knoll's Encyclopedia of Natural Health or something like that. And I just looked at it thinking maybe there's something in here about strep throat. And I found this entry for pineapple. And like, of course, the bromelain, the enzyme that's in it is proteolytic. So it breaks down protein. And so you can, you know, process the pineapple, keeping the core in where the core is kind of the more concentrated part in bromelain and eat little bits of it and let it run down your throat. And it will help to break down the protein and the bacteria. And of course, kill the bacteria in your throat. So I gave it a try. Next time I started feeling my throat itchy and scratchy, like I'm getting infected, I got on my bike and pedaled down to the grocery store and picked up a pineapple out of the produce department. Came home and prepared it and I ate it. And my strep throat went away and it didn't come back this time. And it was a really magical moment for me to connect how I can take some responsibility for my health and how powerful healing foods can really be. I don't think I had ever really thought of them as having a healing capacity before. Of course, I had nothing to lose. This is a plant like it's a food. It's pineapple. I love pineapple. So, of course, I'm going to give it a try.
0: Oh, I love that story for so many reasons. Like I love how young you were and that you know these things just kind of came together like, oh, there's a book. Oh, I'm going to look at it. I love that you just got on your bike and went to the supermarket, because that's how I grew up very much as well. I don't know that a lot of kids (laughs) grow up that way these days, but I love that. And yeah, just how sense of of empowerment on so many levels. And then, of course, that you got better. So Mm -hmm. I also had strep throat repeatedly as a kid. And so I I did. Yeah. So I'm a little bit jealous because I did not come up with the pineapple solution. It was all antibiotics for me, which I've often wondered about that, you know, just that like after effect of taking antibiotics so often at that young age. So yeah. yeah, yeah. thanks for sharing that story. Well, I often start out with hearing like what got you on your path and what what's led you here. So I'm guessing mm-hmm. that's part of it. So I'd love to hear more about your plant path.
1: Yeah. Well, that's a big part of it, you know, in terms of kind of shaping my view of healing plants. As So I started researching more about nutrition and plants at that point, kind of functional medicine stuff a little bit. As I was kind of graduating high school and moving into the next part of my life, I didn't really know what I wanted to do yet, I didn't have a lot of direction, and I was really into survivalism and the wilderness, so I took a trip out to the Pacific Northwest when I was 19, and it was my first solo wilderness adventure, and I picked up a copy of Michael Moore's book of, I think it's Medicinal Plants of the Pacific Northwest or something like that, maybe a specific Mountain West, one of of Michael Moore's books and read it like on the night I was heading into the woods, read it like at my hotel last stop before before the wilderness. And there was an entry in there about usnia lichen and how it can be beneficial for respiratory infections. And I thought, Ooh, I've had respiratory infections. Those can get pretty nasty. I might need that. And when I got to the woods where I was at, it was, you know, kind of rainforesty and lots of lichen growing in the trees. And I was able to, to tease it apart and find a little thread in there. And Verified was Usnea lichen based on his descriptions. And so I collected a little bit and put it in my backpack and kind of just forgot about it and took my little wilderness adventure and then ended up going home. And when I got home, my dad who I was living with at the time had a really bad respiratory infection. He's like, Oh, you know, I'm really glad to see you, but I'm going to have to have you take me to the doctor tomorrow because I feel terrible. And I said, Oh, I was like, Oh, and it kind of, you know, light bulb went off in my head and I thought, Oh, I have this, this plan I gathered when I was on my trip, do you want to try that and see, you know, if it helps anything? Well, could it hurt? Probably not, you know? (laughs) So I brewed him up a tea with it and gave it to him and pops drank it. And the next morning he said, you know, basically in so many words, um, I feel so much better. Just make me more tea. I'm not going to go to the doctor. And I think that that was the, pretty much the end of my dad going to the doctor and he's pretty much treated me as his, his source of natural health ever since. And, that experience inspired me to, to realize like, oh, I want to do this more. I want to deepen my learning and I want to help people with natural medicine. So that kind of sparked my learning more about it. And some of my big teachers that have been really important for me have been Seven Song, who I studied with at the Northeast School of Botanical Medicine. And he taught me how to identify plants and make medicine and do a lot of really amazing things. It was a very influential teacher for me. I studied with Jim McDonald also in his intensive program and learned a lot about energetics and a lot of great things with Jim. Margie Flint is wonderful and and other folks. So it's I, I'm constantly trying to learn new things and deepen my skill set. In fact, I just this morning, signed up to finish my bachelor's degree finally in biology and field botany.
0: Wow. Wow. And tell me a little bit about persimmon too.
1: Oh, yeah. So our business is Persimmon Herb School, and it's a partnership between me and my wife slash partner, Colleen, who is a yoga teacher, meditation instructor, and herbalist as well. And we bought our place with the goal of having this home-based education center and garden and homestead together where we could help share our passion for plants and connecting with nature, with other people. We are home to a mature growth of persimmon trees. And so we named it for the dominant plants that occur here. And we also harvest those persimmons and sell those to local shops as persimmon pulp in the fall. Last year, I think we did 70 pounds of persimmon pulp, about 30 pounds of pawpaw as well.
0: Wow. Wow. Well, thanks for sharing that. I'm kind of, I'm often struck by Mm -hmm. how similar stories are. But I also got into herbalism through survival stuff. And I went to school. That's kind of like my first schooling out out of college as I went to different survivalist schools. And then my dad was also game for trying all sorts of things. So I just <laughs> yeah. yeah. So here's the cool dads, <laughs> or at least them being open. So yeah, thanks for sharing about that. I would love to dive into oaks and acorns. It's this is the first time mm-hmm. they're showing up on the show. And speaking of which, oaks and acorns are something. I worked with a lot more when I was in, you know, going through survival schools. Now where I live, mm. there's not really any significant oak population, but it's a plant that I miss, and I'm excited to hear what you have to share.
1: Well, that's a shame. Where are you that you don't have any oaks?
0: I'm in the Metau Valley of Washington State, which is a couple hours south of the Canadian border, and it's okay. eastern, more eastern Washington. Mm-hmm. So when I was in western Washington, there were oaks, and people planted them, you know, as ornamentals too. So mm-hmm. I would go harvesting in neighborhoods in Seattle and that sort of thing. But Very yeah, new. here there's one oak tree that I know of here.
1: Okay, so you have harvested acorns though, and you've
0: yes, oh yes, Great. yeah.
1: Oh, that's exciting.
0: Yeah, they make. I'm. We'll talk about your recipe in a bit, but I'm. I just think they make such a lovely flower. That's just so absolutely delicious. So, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's hear, (laughs) I guess, why were you inspired to choose Oak for the, the podcast?
1: Oak has been a plant for me that feels like so motherly, grandmotherly even. The Oak tree supports so much life in nature. It is kind of like full of epiphytic goodness up there of lichens and a whole canopy of things going on. And when we look at like what insect species are on what plants in the environment, the oak tree support will support twice the diversity of like the next highest tree in our environment, at least here in the Eastern deciduous forest. So that is just like something for me, connection wise, that is just special about oak in particular, it's, I think I, I was kind of called to get to know it. It was one of my meditation trees when I was also kind of a younger guy. And I started meditating early. I started meditating at like age eight. But there was this tree that I would go to out behind my dad's place. And it was my special tree to sit under. And just had like just the right buttress roots to support my little behind sitting there for a long time in meditation on this little hillside. I think that's the kind of the first place I really connected with this tree. I sort of thought of it as my giving tree. In fact, one day I went out there and it had been logged out of the forest. And it had been a few years since I had been there. And it was, I i literally sat there and cried for that tree. And I never thought I would have that kind of connection or feeling to a plant. But I was i was kind of early on in my medicine making workshops that I started to teach, which I've been doing for about 15 years now. So, but I was uh, I was doing a lot in kind of like the... of of foraging workshops in the herbal medicine vein. We were making teas and salves and cool stuff like that. And then I met some other foragers who were like, oh, well, well, how are you going to eat out here? You know, you can't just eat tea and be okay as their survivalist. So they kind of challenged me a little bit to think about how I was foraging or at least teaching about it. And so I went to one of their workshops about harvesting acorns because acorns are one of the rare sources of carbohydrate and starch that you can find out in nature in like a really dense, easy-to-gather, easy-to-collect way. Of course, acorns, you can't just pick them up off the ground and eat them most of the time. So they do take some work to process and make them edible, but I feel like that's just true for everything. And if you think about the offset for agriculture and what it takes to grow, let's say, corn, you know, there's the tilling and the cultivation after planting and you know, serving it and protecting it from all the different things that want to eat corn to get a crop finally in the end. And you have to dry it just right or it might mold. So acorns do most of that for you because the tree is just growing and doing its thing. But you have a little more processing to do on the back end to make it edible. So I think it kind of works out to be a similar amount. As somebody who also grow, I do also grow my own corn and try to do some small grain kind of production. It It works out almost the same, I feel like.
0: That is such a great analogy. I also grow corn, so I get that. And it's, I've never really thought of it like that. One thing you're making that I'm being reminded about is when I was in college, I got really into the simplicity movement and I would just read all these books. And this is like way pre-herbalist. And so I would, I remember reading about acorn flower and I just thought it was cool. You know, I hadn't done anything with it. I just thought it was cool. And I was staying with my grandfather, my Papa Jack in Texas one summer, and we found an oak tree and there was all these acorns. And I told him, you know, just repeating what I'd read. And I was like, oh, you know, you can gather these and then, you know, you can soak them. And I went through all the process of what you would do from what I read. And my Papa, who I, you know, loved dearly, just looked to me and said, why would you do that? you can get flour for 99 cents a pound at the store. And I was, I didn't really have a response for that. You know, I was kind of, because I just, in my heart, I knew that it was so cool that we could do it ourselves. Mm -hmm. But, you know, obviously when we do that, when we buy it from the store, we're also kind of erasing all of the work that went into that. So erasing the work. And
1: also I think, you know, we're disconnected. It's a disembodied way to get our food and it feels empty. We don't feel connected to those biscuits that you make from wheat flour from the 99 cent a pound bag of wheat compared to those dense acorn muffins that you can make where you're like, you know what tree you were under when you gather those, you can smell the air again. You know, you can see the squirrels scurrying around and you just feel connected to your land and to the place that you're in. And they're just, nutritionally too, you just can't compare acorn flour to wheat flour. It's way more nutritionally dense and fatty and rich. When I eat things cooked with acorn, I feel like I've eaten something meaty, something substantial and heavy in a way that I don't get that from a typical pastry crust or something.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so true. I love the image of the squirrels and just that connection to, to place and the empowerment that brings us and with that connection.
1: And, you know, there's an ancestral aspect to it, too, because pretty much anywhere you are in the Northern Hemisphere, you know, your people ate acorns at some point in your history, not that far long ago. So
0: would you explain a little bit of like what goes into processing acorns to make them edible? Sure.
1: So you collect your acorns. You're going to go find a nice tree. I try to find one during a mast season when they're really producing a lot of nuts and there's just abundant acorns on the ground. And I gather them and kind of sort as I gather, I discard anything that has a hole where there might be a weevil in there, or if it's obviously discolored and it might have some mold or something, I I leave that behind and I throw pretty much good ones in my basket. So then I bring them home and they're still wet and damp at that stage. So you've got to dry them out. So I spread them out usually on the screen or out, maybe on a blanket on my deck would be pretty good spot to dry them out too for a while. It's okay to put the acorns in the sun to dry, which we wouldn't normally do with a lot of herbs, but as a food thing, they're okay done like that. And the shell protects them from direct insulation. After they're dry, they can be stored like that. And that's how they store best. And then when you're ready to process them, you crack the nuts, take out the nut meats inside. Then you have to rehydrate those. So you soak those overnight. And then once they're rehydrated, you can grind them up. I use a Vitamix blender. They're great. We have two now. I feel really blessed about that. Blend them up and make a slurry. It'll be like a basically like an acorn milkshake at that stage. So you're going to add extra water. Then at that stage, I put them into a colander. So I've got like a big two-gallon metal colander. I line that with muslin cloth. And then that goes on top of a couple of sticks over a bucket. So it can all just drain into this five-gallon food grade bucket. And I put the acorn into the cloth in the top. And then I start running water over it, and that leaches out the tannins from the acorn. You get a little bit of starch comes out too, which is why you have the bucket there and the bucket catches the starch, which falls out of solution and collects on the bottom. And so you can reserve that and reclaim that back later. And it takes about 40 gallons of water or so per gallon of acorn to leach out the tannins enough to where it tastes bland and starchy instead of astringent and bitter. And that's the stage at which it's ready to go. And you can either use it fresh as like an acorn grits like that. You can culture that with lacto-ferment you know, style and make kind of like an acorn yogurt sort of thing that's really tasty. Or you can take it and take the meal and dry it out completely, grind it up again to make acorn flour. And so I have this is my batch from last fall. So you can see it's like a this is from White Oak Acorns, Quercus alba. And so you get a white-ish colored flower from it. But when I do the red oak acorns, I get a red colored flower from it. And I think, I don't know this for sure, I have been able to verify this, but I think that's where the red oak, white oak designation comes from, is from the color of the the oak a- acorn meal that you get. Because it's a lot more predictable than looking at the trees and saying, oh yeah, that's a, you know, these characteristics are red oak. I don't know, it's, it seems more reliable than like the loathing on the leaves or the bark color or other aspects. <laughs>
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I've only worked with the white oak before. And I was always taught that the white oak tends to be a lot less astringent. I don't mm-hmm. know if that water requirement changes between the white and the a red. Bit. Yeah, A
1: yeah. little bit, but it's like, you know, it's a kind of an exponential curve. Mm. and so You know, it's it's not it doesn't seem like a, that much more water to do red oaks, but the red oak acorns are better preserved and they have a longer collection time through the season so your white oak acorns are going to germinate in the fall and that makes them more likely to spoil and become otherwise contaminated so i gather them right away process them process them right away and then i dry the red oak acorn for storage for for longer term
0: hmm. use nice and your setup sounds really slick like that's a really great way to do that because it Sometimes I think that acorn processing can feel a little bit overwhelming or just like it's complicated, but the way you described it and that setup just sounds very easy.
1: Yeah, I think the most complicated part is the leaching, and especially mm-hmm. if you're trying to do that in jars, which is kind of how I was taught, it it does take a long time to get there and it's hard to really get it finished. So I think using a more of a percolation type method instead of a maceration method really helps. But there's different ways to improvise that. You know, there's a local around here who, you know, like they just kind of crack the nuts more coarsely and then they throw, you know, a loose bag of those in the tank of the toilet after kind of giving <laughs> a little refresher, you know, a little clean. Then each time you flush the toilet, you're just passively washing out the acorn tannins. And so you're not using any extra water. So, mm-hmm. in a, in a, you know, I live in Indiana and we have abundant water resources. It's a blessing, but I know that's not true everywhere. And so if you're in a place that's drier, you know, you can definitely find some creative ways using rainwater I've leached them out in a stream before for a more primitive kind of setting so there's different ways to do it get creative yeah, I've,
0: done the, I've done the stream method as well so that's a nice way they get kind of eating in there right yeah. like
1: To take on a little more of like a boggy kind of quality
0: mm-hmm. maybe depending on the spring it would be different different terroir uh, wherever you yeah. are <laughs> And you've shared a recipe with us for Colleen's acorn cookies, inspired by your wife, I assume?
1: Yes, for sure. Colleen.
0: It's crackers, um, not cookies. Crackers.
1: Crackers, yeah. Yeah. So she really has started going nutty with the sourdough. Okay. (laughs) You might know somebody in your life who, in the pandemic, is like this, and everything is sourdough now. We just had sourdough cinnamon rolls, which were amazing. But she's just cranking out the stuff. And... I love acorn bread and, and like acorn soups and different things, but my whole family doesn't love them. So we're, you know, we're, we've been working with trying to find some other ways that acorns are more palatable, especially for the, you know, the single digit people, you know, aged people in my family. So the crackers are great. Everybody loves a good cracker, like a salty, carby snack. And usually we're thinking, oh, this is kind of a treat or I need to be cautious about how much I eat here. But when you're eating like a homemade cultured sourdough cracker, that's half acorn flour and it's got, you know, amaranth seeds and sunflower seeds and all kinds of other goodies tucked in there. It doesn't feel like, you know, you have to worry about that. It just feels like this is good nutrition. and I like it. So.
0: Well, thank you so much for sharing that recipe with us. And for me, it's just before lunch. So I'm hungry now. (laughs) I'm also really intrigued by this acorn yogurt too. That, is also Mm -hmm. very interesting so yeah the possibilities out there
1: for sure for sure and you connect with your environment in a place like I am in where it's mostly field cropped here and most of our forests and wetlands have been drained and cut for growing corn and soybeans this is a way to like I think help bring some value back to the forests and conservation that doesn't involve logging and other extractive processes we can I think when once people start to connect with the plants in their landscape then it does help create more of that impetus for conservation which I think we need.
0: Mm. This is kind of tangential but isn't Indiana where Jean Stratton Porter was from? Are you aware of Jean Stratton? Yes. Yeah so the book The Girl of the Limberlost was my favorite book when I was like 12 and I've Mm -hmm. read that book maybe 30 times in my life but as you were talking about kind of the deforestation there it made me think of her writings and yeah yeah.
1: Indiana used to be home to probably the largest wetland complex in North America at mm-hmm. one time when, you know, it was south of Lake Michigan, and it was the Grand Kankakee Marsh, and the part of Limberloss Swamp was part of it, and it was all drained for agriculture, and then, you know, it turned out to flood a lot, and so the crops didn't do great, and there was a lot of sandy soil, so the nutrients leached out, and they didn't do so great, and so we've, it's really... It's just so sad to see it. You know, I go up there and explore some of those remnants and, you know, you can still find lotus plants and other cool wetland stuff up there. But to just imagine the millions of acres there would have been and how lost it is to unproductive practices, it just seems like such a folly that our ancestors had such hubris to just trample the landscape the way that they have. It's really sad what's happening
0: in our country. It's really sad. Are there efforts to replant or reforest
1: there are parts of you know of the that are protected and that are you know there are more active wetland conservation things going on but it's such a political battle here Hmm. we we just had a wetlands bill last year that was passed that basically made it totally cool to just drain and eliminate private wetlands Mm -hmm. on any property they're no longer protected in by the state of indiana if they're not connected to a federal body of water then they're fair game for development and as long as you put a retention pond, well, that's all the same to us as far as Indiana is concerned. So that's a really unfortunate policy. And to think about how Indiana's lost 98, 99% of its wetlands, and it was once dominated by wetlands, which are such a good carbon sink, too, with mm-hmm. the climate change issues, it is a real, a real issue that we need to, to tackle with a little more urgency in this state. Indiana is not known for being a progressive state environmentally or otherwise so we take a long time to turn the ship around here. So I keep my fingers crossed that we'll keep making you know, better choices. And I think all in all, you know, we're improving somewhat due to like federal prodding because, you know, Indiana contributes more soil erosion to the Mississippi watershed than I think any other state or at least a disproportionate amount uh, higher than other states because of all the agriculture and runoff that happens. I'm hopeful, you know, and I've seen more practices moving towards like wetland buffers along riparian zones and conservation grants towards taking farmland out of that. And and that helps restore the wild edges of the rivers, which help with flood control, which is an issue here and everywhere now. And so I think it's moving in the right direction. It's just slow. And I don't know that we'll ever be able to, there's not really a going back to what it was like here before the damage was done. So much biomass is now stored in buildings as lumber or has been burnt or eroded downstream. It's just never going to be the same forest with the, you know, Indiana had 14 foot diameter sycamores and such when settlers got here. There's no trees like that here anymore. Yeah. Well, we, I think we can look forward to what what does a healthy balanced ecosystem look like or how what's the best way we can get there in the context of where we're headed in climate change.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But, I mean, we're getting pretty far off course from a – like a standard herbal medicine podcast, I feel like. Yeah.
0: Um, Yeah. I do find it fascinating though. And just, and even our role as herbalists of, you know, when people like take the oak tree, for example, when people come to love the oak tree, rely on the oak tree for medicine, which we haven't talked about yet, or food, Mm -hmm. there's a shift that happens there. And I, for me, I think that's one of the most important shifts we can make because in my life, I've seen that like when I tried to tell people how they should feel about something or tell people that, that obvious that just doesn't really work. I tried for yeah. I was an activist in college and I really did try, you know, standing on street corners and I really tried to tell people a lot of things and it didn't really go anywhere. And I ended up getting burnt out. But watching someone grow to love the plants around them and then also rely on those plants for food and medicine that makes such a big shift and it's no longer about telling people it's just opening up a world that's already there to them so I think it is somewhat related in that it feels like some of the most important work we can do as herbalists and and why I get really passionate about herbalists as a plant or as a bioregional focused Mm -hmm. practice because although I love say trying to think of a plant that doesn't grow here I love cacao you know like that is a plant I definitely love and a plant that I turn to often but there's something different about turning to cacao versus turning to elderberries which grow right outside my front door and just that connection I have with those versus something that grows far away and there's a lot of as herbalism grows, there's a lot of focus on more exotic plants that don't grow near us, as if those are like the best ones, you know, the macas mm-hmm. and the turmerics. Again, plants, I have nothing against plants that I even like, but I think this getting to know our, our place and the plants around us is such an empowerful part of herbalism that I don't like to see that looked over for this kind of like nutraceutical, get your herbs in a bottle approach.
1: Right. It makes sense. I, mean, I, you know, I started out a natural food world where it was like, oh, I have this tincture. It has a label on it. It tells me what's in there, and I believe that's what it is. But I really have no idea. And I've never met this plant, or seen. It. I have no idea where it grows, what culture it might have been to. You know, but I know it does X, Y, and Z in the body supposedly because i read this book. You know what I mean? And it just mm-hmm. it, it felt disembodied then. And so I, I met a, an herbalist in that work that I was, that had studied with Seven Song like, oh you should I was like you're an herbalist I didn't know that was a thing and so she recommended seven song and that was yeah definitely a part of it so I can I can resonate with that going from like the nutraceutical stuff and seeing how how pervasive and how effective those marketing messages can be to promote these exotic superfood type plants and things like that when we all can just go down to the river or the hedgerow to pick stinging nettle and probably get more out of it right, than some some of these other things. So, yeah, I hope that your listeners are skeptical. I I imagine they are probably a little more educated on that sort of thing than a lot of folks in the natural medicine world. Definitely be skeptical of of what people have to gain by selling you their products.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, well said. Well, so we've talked about OCUS food, talked about OCUS comfort, and, you know, going to your oak tree for meditation. I'm wondering if you'd like to talk about oak as medicine.
1: Sure. I, I use oak on a limited basis for medicine. I don't feel like I use it a lot. Main thing I'm looking for in oak is a simple astringent. So it doesn't have, I feel like to me, a lot else going on in it chemistry-wise or energy-wise, but the the tandems are strong in this one, and they are easily extracted in water, so I will I don't have any bark with me here, but I will take twigs and just shave the the bark off of them. I usually use something kind of small that's either come off of like a tree in a windstorm or something that I can prune to help encourage the health of the tree, but that's still pretty small, so I can use inner bark, outer bark together and not feel like I have to take something big down and separate that. But any anyway, rate, I'll take the bark, you can dry it for storage, and then I'll brew it into you know i throw like a large handful into a quart jar pour some boiling water on that and let that steep and use that for like maybe a wound wash for something like if i if one of my kids goes down on concrete and the skin just gets all mashed up and is gross and there's debris in there it can help to put a put that in a bath for a while and oak makes a great herb for going into a, a wound wash bath like that and it will help kind of tighten up the tissue stop bleeding help clean it up a little bit and hopefully help get out some of the crud that gets mixed into those kind of wounds.
0: Mm. I I yeah. like it.
1: Sometimes, you know, I'll use it with like a tooth powder blend. I used to mix up tooth powders and use those with like some baking soda and uh, put a little oak bark in there, you know, maybe some horsetail or other things for you know strengthening your teeth. And in there, the astringent helps kind of tighten up the gums. It helps prevent tooth decay. It helps moderate bacteria it's not really like antimicrobial antimicrobial but it toughens up the body to make it more resistant to microbes i feel like and then when we're making the acorn the acorn mash we take the like the water that we've collected the the tannin water and we take that and like put it in the bathroom you know put it in our hair in showers we'll put that in the bath you know we, we try to use at least a little bit of it when it's nice and strong towards the beginning of the process. So it doesn't all just get poured out in the garden. Hmm, nice. The, you know, acorn tannins are hepatotoxic and they, you know, if you consume them internally, they can basically like tan your gut from the inside and lead to like limited nu- nutritional absorption, but they're also just hepatotoxic. So there are different tannins and different plants. So tannins are not all the same thing. And so the ones in Oak are not great for internal use. I don't usually use it internally for medicine. I would normally turn to a different astringent type plant for that, depending on kind of what I'm looking at. Okay. So, yeah. So I use oak externally or the mouth. Yeah. That's about it. What about you? Do you have other uses you like to use oak for?
0: I definitely use the wound. That's the, the big way that we used it is was for wounds and in the primitive skills or earth living schooling I did, that was kind of a, a go-to I was taught to use it internally. So that was, in- it's interesting mm-hmm. about the he- hepatotoxicity. I'm wondering if there's like a a dosage or a duration on that. I Because it was historically used kind of famously. The thing, yeah. I have not turned to it a lot internally though, because it's so intense. And mm-hmm. I just haven't had that. It's just so intense that it seems overblown, which it is a great thing to taste if you're wondering what astringency is. You could also get that from like a green banana or something. and <laughs> so You, you mm-hmm. don't have to do it, but it is so like just that's astringent yeah so mainly the the wound wash is also what i've used it for nice yeah
1: yeah it is it is very astringent that's the same reason i don't use it internally a lot you know because i could give something gentler like a plantain or even a yarrow you know for some astringent of course there's other stuff going on there it's not so simple but it feels better internal environment fit
0: yeah yeah. For me, the blackberry roots Oh yeah, yeah. Is, is more of what I would go through for the astringent.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Rose family stuff, like some rosebud.
0: I do occasionally
1: just like to pick up an acorn and eat it off the ground. I think that it's just good digestive tonic. And I think, you know, human bodies are pretty adapted to some plant-based chemistry stressors from time to time. And I think that that's good for us to engage those things. So I like to just munch an acorn. I'm gonna get some tannins in there. So yeah, as far as like you know, I'm not that worried about the toxicity. That I'm just gonna stay away from it internally altogether. But I wouldn't want to take it every day. That's for sure. There, it's a lot more palatable if you get the tannins out for the acorn flour. That's for sure. That is one thing. It don't don't underwash your acorn because if you end up with an acorn batch of flour and it's too astringent and nobody wants to eat it. And what do you do with it? It's kind of lost at that point. Or maybe you could feed it to your chickens or something. You know, it's a lot of work to go through to end up having it just too astringent to eat and be comfortable with it. And it's happened to me.
0: I'm glad you mentioned that because I, when you were describing that, I wanted to mention that tasting it along the way is very important. And so you want to taste it before you think you're done, just to make sure.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's how I test it's it. It's
0: edible. Yeah.
1: Once you start getting water that looks less and less amber colored or you know muddy looking yeah start to taste it and it should taste bland and just kind of mealy like a soaked almond or something kind of you know like mildly nutty mm-hmm.
0: I imagine oak must be used for the for tanning here my husband used Doug fir bark for tanning but yeah that's not really known for the astringent so I'm imagining <laughs> that oak it must be used for that in some shape or form
1: I'm sure there are some history, some traditions with that. I'm not familiar with in particular, but I mean, the name tannins comes from hide tanning for that because it makes the leather more waterproof and preserves it. So
0: Uh I've
1: done a little bit of tanning, not with oak. And locally here, you know, the eastern hemlock trees were cut down for their tannins. So I don't know. You probably have some kind of hemlock out there.
0: Yeah, where I live, it's not super common either, so. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, we have a lot of a lot of softwoods here, and yeah, just not mm-hmm. not a lot of tannins. My mm-hmm. husband, he used to do all of our wood with a bow saw. Like, he'd cut down the trees. He did forestry, forestry management, so he'd cut down the trees. Not big ones, you know, but still, he'd use the bow saw, and then he'd cut it up for our use in the fire with a bow saw. And I would brag about this to Jim McDonald, who's our mutual friend, uh-huh. and Jim would, like, often point out that we don't have hardwoods here. He's like, that's just not... <laughs> With the hardwoods, so.
1: It's fair. I wouldn't want to heckle a persimmon tree with a bow saw. That's for sure.
0: Yeah, it's a hardwood, the persimmon.
1: Persimmon is the only plant in North America in the ebony family. So it's like mahogany. Oh, wow. Extremely dense. And the heartwood is is purple in color. And it was used for the woods in golf clubs. Interesting. It's really hard hard stuff.
0: Well, is there anything else that you'd like to share about oak before we move on?
1: You know, oak has some interesting galls in it that are sometimes mm-hmm. as sources of tannins and things. You can use the caps to make cool whistles. Have you ever done that? You ever think a little no, cap a
0: little cap? acorn cap, you mean? Yeah, yeah like
1: you take a little cap and you can kind of position your thumbs over it and blow across it to make a little whistle. It's kind of fun. I
0: haven't done that. There's I have them. used them to make little like fairy creatures. You know, little.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. yeah I feel like cool.
1: oaks are very natural fairy trees just kind of, you know, in the landscape here, their profile is very stately and they have these big blocky, you know, trunks and branches and you can really see them stand out in the forest. They take up a lot of canopy space.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just think oaks are so gorgeous. It's like very romantic, you know, just, especially the older they get, they're just so beautiful.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Such a giver.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I really love that you brought up that it, the oak trees are such a kind of interdependent reciprocity showing us, you know, with all the different pollinators and all the different life it supports. And so I'm glad that you presence that as well.
1: Mm. I mean, I think that's really, to me, the most important medicine from Oak is that, that just giving nourishing quality, because I mean, it not only does that for the the little bugs and things, but around here it's deer, Turkey, squirrel and you know humans everybody eats them Mm -hmm. and benefits from it and it's not you know a lot of plants are out there making toxins that are trying to kill you and it's not (laughs) that it's it just needs to sit out and you know under a tree long enough that the tannins rinse out of it and then you can pick it up and eat it so
0: Mm. lovely well I would love to hear what herbal projects you have going on at your school these days
1: great we have a lot going on. We, we run seasonal intensive programs, and this year we decided to try doing our medicine-making intensive with a virtual format, which has been super fun. We did some virtual programming starting with the pandemic. This is our first time doing medicine-making classes that way. And the joy in it, I think, is that I can be here in my herb room and do my stuff here and demonstrate it for the people in the workshops, and then they can be at home in their kitchens, doing it too. And it's the first time I've ever had that capacity where everybody could do it along with me. Even in like instructional kitchens, there's never enough equipment for everybody. You have to have little groups or something. And so it's has been kind of special to be able to, to do that. So I send out a materials list and equipment list so and people can get their stuff together to be able to make it along with me. And of course, some people who are busy or have kids at home, they just tune in and watch the demonstration and everybody gets to ask questions. Those are also interpreted with ASL sign language interpreters. So we have a partnership with Oxford Interpretive Consulting, who's also a community garden nearby with us. And so they offer, yeah, um, interpreting. So you may not have somebody on the podcast who's deaf or hard of hearing, but maybe, maybe, you know, somebody who is and would be interested in that kind of programming. There's not a lot of enrichment opportunities, at least in my area, for folks like that. So Anyway, it's been a lot of fun to have, you know, diverse people coming from all over the place, from Michigan. And we had somebody from New Mexico last week. And so you could tune in from wherever you're at.
0: Oh, that's wonderful. And I I second that it's just like gratifying to be able to do it live with people, kind of in this move towards the virtual classroom a lot of stuff has moved to kind of like pre-recorded and DIY and Mm -hmm. having that connection I think as herbalists is just so important it's inspiring it's fun yeah so that's really wonderful
1: for sure and I think people learn better and be able to do it too at least I do
0: yeah and where can people go to find out more about these intensives
1: They're on our website at persimmonherbschool.com. We also have an Instagram page, a TikTok. Um, You can find those also, Persimmon School. And we put a lot of stuff on there. If you want, we have some acorn content on there. We may have shared some videos with you. I don't know if those will be attached to this or not, but they are definitely on Instagram and TikTok. We are building a greenhouse that we're finishing right now. It's super exciting. And we're hoping to do more of like native plant production with that, especially important ethnobotanical plants in our area. And, you know, for me, like I I started out in service of people and through working with the plants, I see that they need a lot of help and there's not a lot of people out here helping the plants. And so I've become more and more passionate towards that in the herbal work and it feels very nourishing and restorative to do that kind of work. So we're putting a little more towards conservation here at Persimmon Herb School as well. Um, But yeah, we hope to be able to connect with you guys and talk with you more soon.
0: Wonderful. I'll put quick links to all of your social and your websites, as well as the recipe for the acorn crackers at herbswithrosaliepodcast.com. The show notes there will have it all. Well, before I let you go, Greg, I want to ask you the question I'm asking everybody in season eight, and that is what has been your most important herbal mistake
1: Mm. oh boy this is one thing i love about teaching because i get to be really transparent and honest with (laughs) my students about the mistakes that i've made because you know there are they happen um i i think probably the most important for me has been uh, i think it was maybe the year after i started with seven song i had a toenail a ingrown toenail that went sideways on me and it started to get infected and I thought, oh, here's a great chance for me to employ my new found herbal education. I can be a great patient for, for myself. And I thought, okay, well, what do I have on hand that's really great at killing infections? You know, I basically just went straight, you know, straight allopathic mindset. And I thought, okay, I've got, you know, I've got some Thuja tincture on hand. And oh, I've got this golden seal powder. I can I can make some kind of paste with, Oh, oh, and I've got fresh garlic. I'll take some of that. And I'll mash up this fresh garlic and mix it with these other things and just stick that all right there in my wound, right in my wound. And so I, I made this really nasty looking paste, the yellow with the golden seal and everything, crammed it, packed it in that toenail and I wrapped it all up with duct tape, you know, so like a field bandage kind of thing to keep it all nice and cozy inside. And within a minute or two, it started to tangle and, started to get kind of a burning sensation and, and I thought, Oh, it's working, it's doing it. And I left it on there longer and it started to get pretty uncomfortable around 10 minutes or so. And by 20 minutes in, I had, was just, I couldn't stand it anymore and I had to get it off. And so I, I took the duct tape off real fast, <laughs> washed everything off. And it was like blistery burned, just looked terrible. So I was like, Oh my God, what am I going to do? You know, Colleen was out of town. It seems like this stuff always happens when she's out of town. <laughs> so nobody was there to help me. And I got a hold of my friend, my, my dear friend Shahab, who is a horticulturist and landscape architect guy. And his, his dad was a physician in Iran. And I've learned a lot from his father Parviz over the years, but this was definitely a good lesson. So I, I called Parviz and he said, sure, I could come over. and He'd take a look at it. And he was like, he just was shaking his head. He's like, what did you do? He said, you've, you've got, he's like, you've got so much, so many problems here. You've got the ingrown toenails infected. You've got eczema on your feet and you burned it. And so I learned, you know, not to put fresh raw garlic on the skin. You can cook it. You can infuse it into oil and put it on something like that is okay, but don't crush it up and put it straight on the skin. It's going to burn you. And so he, yeah, he, he really shamed me which I kind of needed that because I was feeling really confident in my new skills. And so he shamed me. He made me take his son's sandals. He's like, don't wear closed toed shoes anymore. Like get these converse out of here. He had his daughter come in and look at my, his daughter's a licensed physician here in the U S. And so she came and looked at my foot the next day. and I was like, Oh yeah, you're going to need surgery for this. So I didn't have medical insurance at the time. So she pulled some strings and got a podiatrist she knew to give me free surgery because he, he owed her a favor. And I had given so many vegetables and things to her family over the years that they felt like they wanted to take care of me. So
0: uh-huh.
1: it worked out in one of those like non-transactional sort of ways that I think, you know, medicine often once did and doesn't happen like that much anymore. It tends to be you know, a very kind of like towered, you know, siloed experience and you have to go to the authorities, you know, and you're paying a lot of money to access their great wisdom up there and it doesn't feel very good sometimes. So I was really grateful for that experience. And so it not only did it help kind of put me in check with my knowledge in herbal medicine, give me some experience, but it also helped me to accept the benefits of the mainstream medical system a little bit better too.
0: Hmm. Oh, well, that's a wonderful way to look at all of that and pull some some lessons and learnings from it. I've also made the mistake of putting fresh garlic on bare skin. So, nice. yeah, yeah, Not I did more. that as well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's kind of one of those things you just have to do once, really. Yeah. and I mean, you don't have to. And anyone who's listening, no. you
1: don't have to. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but if you were to do it unknowingly, it's yeah, that's just a mistake you make one time. It's Did intense. you put it on yourself or others? I oh, no I put on myself. Thank goodness. Yeah, mm-hmm.
1: yeah, yeah. It does I was like in
0: a similar situation. I didn't have money, and I had this rash show up in my armpit, and it was just hot, and it, you know, inflamed, and and I didn't want to go to the doctor because I knew. I remember like even like walking talking it out with my husband I was like it's gonna cost you know I don't I didn't have a primary care divider I didn't have insurance so I was like I know it's gonna cost 90 dollars just for the visit and then they're just gonna give me steroid cream or antibiotics you know and it's like I just like had all this like negative story about it Mm -hmm. and I was like so I'm and it was kind of same deal like just kind of new newly minted herbalist I was like I'm gonna just put garlic on there. And I totally like went for it too, like mashed it all up and you know, put it through a garlic press and put it on. My story ended up in that I did still like it ended up working, but it you Mm. know at a a cost, (laughs) it was very painful. Mm -hmm. So I would choose something else now.
1: Yeah, for sure. For sure. Well I'm glad it worked for you.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm glad that is over because it really was something to remember. Well, Greg, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom, for your most important mistake, and for all your wisdom about oaks and Indiana and land and connection. Mm-hmm. Really appreciate you taking the time to be here and and to share that with all of us.
1: I feel so grateful. Thank you so much for having me on and allowing me to to talk about those things and sharing the stuff with you because it it brings joy to my heart and and meaning. And you've just made this so lovely.
0: Oh. Well, thank you, Greg. Thanks for being here. Don't forget to head over to the show notes at herbswithrosaliepodcast.com to download your beautifully illustrated recipe card and get a transcript of this show. There, you'll also be able to sign up for my weekly newsletter, which is the best way to stay in touch with me. You can also visit Greg directly at persimmonherbschool.com. If you'd like more herbal episodes to come your way, then one of the best ways to support this podcast is by subscribing on YouTube or your favorite podcast app. I deeply believe that this world needs more herbalists and plant-centered folks, and I'm so glad that you're here as part of this herbal community. Also, a big round of thanks to the people all over the world who make this podcast happen week to week. Nicole Paul is the project manager who oversees the whole operation from guest outreach to writing show notes to actually uploading each episode and so many other things I don't even know. She really holds this whole thing together. Francesca is our fabulous video and audio editor. She not only makes listening more pleasant, she also adds beauty to the YouTube videos with plant images and video overlays. Tatiana Rusikova is the botanical illustrator who creates gorgeous plant and recipe illustrations for us. I love them. I know that you do too. Christy edits the recipe cards, and then Jenny creates them as well as the thumbnail images for YouTube. Michelle is the tech wizard behind the scenes, and Karen is our student services coordinator and customer support. For those of you who like to read along, Jennifer is who creates the transcripts each week. Xavier, my handsome French husband, is the cameraman and website IT guy. Thanks to Rising Appalachia for their beautiful song, Resilience. Find more of their music at risingappalachia.com. It takes an herbal village to make it all happen, including you. Thank you so much for your support through your comments, your reviews, your ratings. I read every review that comes in because they're like a little herbal love letter that brightens my day, like this one. I found you on YouTube last week, and I'm so thankful I did. I did your free course, and I'm listening to your podcasts. You have so much great information, and you present it in a way that's easy to understand. So thank you again. Do you love this podcast? If you leave a review for me on Apple Podcasts, I may be reading your herbal love letter on the show next. Okay, you've lasted to the very end of the show, which means you get a gold star and this herbal tidbit. So I mentioned during the interview that I know of one oak tree near where I live. And this oak tree has an interesting story. It's located in downtown Twist, Washington, across from the post office, in what used to be an open space or empty lot, besides the oak tree, of course. (laughs) The land where the oak stood was put up for sale and a local couple bought the land specifically to protect the oak tree from being felled by a less discerning developer. In a newspaper article, one of the new owners said, we bought the property to save the tree. It's the biggest plant we ever bought. (laughs) They then built a small two-story building on the property that was positioned and designed so the oak tree could continue growing. It's a beautiful story about prioritizing trees.